It's been a super cool day. You know, one of the things, those of you who are watching online, uh, thank you for being a part of this. It is just so fun. Every single week we get to hear stories of what's happening uh, online. You know, we're talking to you guys about hosting a Rock the Block in your neighborhood this summer. We have a family in Oregon that watches every week, and, and they're going to host a Rock the Block this summer. That's pretty cool, isn't it? Very exciting. So <laughs> Pastor Daniel's going out there to check on them just to make sure everything's all right. It's going to be a good time. Hey, uh, we're going to talk today about the first Raised to Life weekend in, in Scripture, in Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 is, is one of the most powerful chapters in the entire Bible, and let me just sort of set up the context with you uh, just uh, really quickly. Acts chapter 2, the events in Acts chapter 2 happen really 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, so about two months after Easter, we see the events of Acts chapter 2. And so what's happening in Acts chapter 2, we see the believers are still there. There's about 120 followers of Jesus. They're still in Jerusalem for 40 days after the resurrection. Jesus is appearing, teaching, and ministering. And then he ascends to heaven. And then the believers are told to stay and wait until ultimately the promised Holy Spirit, the one who's going to come and dwell in believers. So they're still there uh, waiting for 10 days. And then that's when things erupt in Acts chapter 2. Now, just another fact about Acts chapter 2 that I think is super cool. All this is taking place over a Jewish festival called Pentecost. And so uh, Pentecost was 50 days after Passover. So we think about Jesus being crucified and his resurrection over Passover weekend. We can sort of uh, connect the dots. If you were here with us through our Exodus series and the, the Hebrews celebrated Passover and the angel of death passed over them because they had the blood of the sacrifice on their door and then Jesus being crucified and resurrected over Passover. That meant Jesus is the Passover lamb. So now Pentecost is when the Hebrews for really thousands of years celebrated Pentecost because it was the first of the wheat harvest, so they were celebrating that. They also celebrated the giving of the law over Pentecost, that God gave the law to Moses uh, to guide them and ultimately show them that they had a need for a Savior. And then in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2 is when the Holy Spirit falls upon believers, because here's the thing about the law. The law showed us that we were in sin, but the law could never change us. It was only when the Holy Spirit comes to dwell inside of us that now we have a whole new power to walk in obedience. So all that is taking place in and around Acts chapter 2, and I know that's a lot. But the Holy Spirit falls in Acts chapter 2. And the, and the scripture says Luke is writing. Luke is a, a physician. He's also a historian. So he's writing and recording all this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he said the sound, when the Holy Spirit fell on these believers in the room where they were gathered, it was like the sound of a rushing wind. Or some scholars said it was like a tornado. So everybody that's in Jerusalem makes their way there because it's just this undeniable sound. Something is going on. And they see these uh, like tongues of fire that are falling on believers. And you have this 120 that are speaking in a different language because the Holy Spirit is allowing them to. And so you have all these people from all these different areas that are in Jerusalem for Pentecost and they speak different languages and they're hearing uh, the praises and honor of our God in their own language. This is an unbelievable experience. And then Simon Peter says, well, we got a crowd. We got the Holy Spirit. It's time to preach. And so he jumps up and preaches one of the most courageous sermons, really, uh, in the history of, of the biblical narrative. And so we're going to pick up in Acts chapter 2. We're going to go all the way down to Simon Peter's message, the closing part of it, uh, starting in verse 36. All right, are you ready? 
And we're calling this Lessons from the First Raised to Life Weekend because we're really seeing that some things that are happening here today and all weekend with this baptismal service are really modeled in some ways off of this uh, first one for the, for the new church. Now look at Acts chapter 2, verse 36. Simon Peter says, Therefore let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Now, this is a pretty bold statement because Simon Peter is in the same city, Jerusalem. He's speaking to the same people that just 50 days earlier said to Pilate, when Pilate tries to offer up uh, Barabbas as a, as a substitute, and they, they wanted Jesus, they wanted him crucified, so they're just chanting at the top of their lungs, crucify, crucify. That's the same group of people that Simon Peter is preaching to, and he's telling them that you were wrong about Jesus and you crucified the Lord, which means God in the flesh. It means our master. And you crucified the Messiah, which means the long-awaited Savior, the one who fulfilled all the messianic promises, the one who was your only hope of salvation, and you crucified him. Have you ever been to a church service and kind of felt convicted or guilty? Probably all have. But, I mean, you're sitting in this one and Simon Peter says, hey, all of you here, guess what you just did 50 days ago? You just crucified God. That's a weighty thing to say. When the people, look at verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were broken. They don't, they're not railing against Simon Peter. They understand what is happening and they realize that they're responsible for what's happening. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? In other words, they're not waiting for Simon Peter to get done with his message and having an invitation so they can come forward and see what to do. They're just, they're just calling out. They're saying, we're guilty. What, what do we do? Have we lost all hope? And then Simon Peter answers that. He says, repent. Repent means to turn away. It means to move in a whole new direction. You were living one way in disobedience to God and, and, and totally living for yourself, or you were trusting completely in, in the law for your salvation. Turn away from that and trust completely in the Lord Jesus and submit to him and then be baptized as a, as a sign that you have received his forgiveness. And then he says, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So one of the things that we see, and I, I've said this all weekend long, and I don't know if it resonates, but every Everybody wants more, right? No matter what facet of life it's, it is, you want more. But spiritually, the truth and the key to having more is to walk in obedience. And that is what we have seen all weekend long of folks that have just trusted God, who've walked in obedience, and God has just blessed them with just more of his presence. And so we're, we're excited about that. You're going to have a chance to do that. And then, then Simon Peter says, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all who call upon the name of the Lord, right? Or for all whom the Lord our God will call. Now, let me just say this because I sort of butchered that, so if you can give me a do-over. What he's really saying, he says, all of you who are gathered here and feel far off. Like when you came as a pilgrim to Jerusalem and you came to the temple, the temple was, was not a place that was sort of come as you are. I mean, it's like when, when you gather here at New Vision, like anybody can come in here, right? Doesn't matter what you're wearing, doesn't matter who you are, who your mama was, you're just welcome. That's not the way it was there. If you were a Gentile, a non-Jew, 
There was like a court that you have that was like a parking lot. That's as far as you got, right? If you had blemishes on your body, you're out. You, you, you can't go. There was just where the presence of God was in the Holy of Holy was only the high priest who could go in once a year. And so Simon Peter says, any of you feel like far away from God, even though you're right here at the temple? And everybody would have said, yeah, yeah. And he said, because of the work of Christ, what he's done, you have been brought near. Well, that was just life-giving for them. With many other words, he warned them. That, that, I love that. that. For a preacher, that's really funny. That's Luke's way of saying Simon Peter's message was like super long. I'm kind of condensing it for you, right? This is Cliff Notes version of what Simon Peter uh, had to say. Some of you are like, could you hire somebody like that that could sort of do that? that that'd be great. And he pleaded with them, save yourself from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. We're going we're gonna to kind of dig into that for just a, just a few moments. Sometimes people say, well, I don't like a large church. I, I, I just grew up in a small church. I don't like a large church. Uh, the first church in Jerusalem went from 120 to over 3,000 in one day, right? So you probably wouldn't have liked, a, you wouldn't have liked the first church, right? So it's just an explosion of, of really growth. That never goes over well whenever I share that, but... Let's look at a couple, a couple principles that we learned from this today that I hope will be helpful to you. At the first Raise to Life weekend over Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, here's what happens. Many realized they had been wrong about Jesus. Look at verse 36 again in Simon Peter's message. Therefore, let all of Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Messiah, right? In, in other words, he's saying you crucified him because you were, what, what you understood him to be was, was, was wrong. You were wrong about him. You, you thought he was a, a, a nuisance. You thought he was just a great prophet. Or, or, or some, of you, some of you thought that he was sort of this political figure who was going to come and just liberate Israel from Rome, and you all missed it. You were wrong about Jesus, and that's why you did what you did. And so for us today, let, let's just be honest. If we're not careful, we can be wrong about Jesus too. Instead of knowing him as Lord and Messiah, meaning master and my only hope of salvation, we sort of minimize him. And in every generation, people tend to minimize Jesus. And so what do we do? We make him like a moral God. Jesus, Jesus is like our, our moral God. He teaches us how to love, teaches us how to live. Well, he's way more than that. Or Jesus is a great teacher. Listen, he's everything that every great teacher was pointing to. Or we might say Jesus is a great social justice advocate. Well, he's way more than that. Or for some of us, Jesus is sort of like a, like a genie in the bottle, right? We're in a tough spot. Then we go to him. For some of us, he's just sort of good luck charm. That, that's our, our Jesus. But what Simon Peter says, you're wrong about him. Here's who he is. He is Lord, which means he's our master, which means their only proper response is surrender. Does that make sense? You see that? And he's telling them to, re to repent and to trust Jesus as their Lord, meaning you have been living for yourself, but he's the Lord. He's the master. And then he says he's Messiah, which means he is Savior. And what do we do? We trust completely in him, right? So here's a question I want you to think about and wrestle with just for a few moments as it relates to Jesus. Is he who he says he is? Or to you, is he who you say he is? You see, because many times those are two different things. Is he Lord and Messiah? Or have, or have you sort of created your own version of Jesus that sort of fits your life? And that's what Simon Peter says. And what happens at the first Raised to Life weekend is many people there realize, you know what? 
I've been wrong about him. In fact, if we could just be, be honest, remember last week, if you were here last week and we looked at the, the story of the road to Emmaus, the two disciples, meaning they were a part of this 120 who'd been with Jesus for multiple years, maybe as long as three years, they're walking away on that road. We had that message over Easter. Could somebody nod like you remember that? Nobody? That's encouraging. And, and, and they don't even, they don't understand it's Jesus walking in their midst and they're trying to tell Jesus about who they believe Jesus was. That's kind of interesting. And they said, we thought he was a prophet, powerful in word and deed. And we had hoped he was going to redeem Israel. So for these two guys who were inner circle guys, they were wrong about Jesus. They thought he was a prophet instead of understanding he's the one that every prophet was prophesying about or they thought he was a political re- leader going to redeem Israel. They didn't realize that he was going to redeem mankind much greater than that, you see? Here's the second thing. At the first Raised to Life weekend, many realized they were wrong about Jesus. And secondly, at the first Raised to Life weekend, many realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. Look at verse 37. When the people heard this, heard what? That they had played a part in the crucifixion of the Messiah. They were cut to the heart. They were broken. They were undone. They felt this guilt. They felt responsibility, right? And so then they respond, what, what shall we do? Can I just tell you something? Nothing really changes in our life until we realize that we were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. Do you understand that today? That you and I were responsible for the death of Jesus Christ. He is dying for your sins and my sins and they finally got that and they were cut to the heart because it got personal. Does that make sense? He's dying for for me. I was responsible for his death. In other words, they're saying, I was the one who yelled crucify, crucify. I was the one who sent him to the cross but even greater than that, I was the one in my times of rebellion over and over again. It was my sin that forced him to step out of heaven and come and die for me. And nothing really happens in your life and my life until we understand that we're responsible for the death of Jesus. When you've been cut to the heart, take a look at this. When you've been cut to the heart, you finally realize it was your sin that sent Jesus to the cross. And when you've been cut to the heart, sin becomes less about breaking God's rules and more about breaking God's heart. Does that make sense? My sin, it's more about, more about me breaking the heart of God than me breaking the rules of God. And then we begin to get responsible because we're great at justifying things, aren't we? Like, yeah, I got some stuff in my life. I'm messed up in this area of my life, but I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Instead of saying, you know what? I'm responsible for the death, Jesus. Number three, let's look at this quickly today. At the first race to life, many realized they were wrong about Jesus. The first raised to life, many realized they were responsible for the death of Jesus. At the first raised to life, baptisms, watch this, were immediate, unplanned, and spontaneous. Like, so that's what some of you are kind of feeling today because this feels like, like the church is kind of going rogue and this is sort of this high pressure Sunday and like you're not really into that, you know, because this seems like, like heavy, heavy on the sort of, sort of guilt, kind of drive-by guiltings that are going on. You're, people are getting baptized even today and we've had people in every single service that, that showed up not expecting to but have left here having identified publicly with Jesus through baptism. And you say, well, why are you doing that way? Because that's the way they did it the, the first time, right? Look at, verse 20, look at verse 41 again. 
Those who accepted his message, meaning the message that Simon Peter is preaching about the truth of Christ Jesus and placed their faith and trust in him, those that accepted their message, about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Do you know what that means? Some of you say, why do you yell sometimes because you guys are sleeping? (laughs) About 3,000 people who woke up that morning had no expectations of being baptized. They weren't dressed for it, right? They hadn't made any kind of calls as if they could. They didn't say, hey, I'm thinking about getting baptized today. It'd be great if you could show up. They had no understanding, but God moved and worked in their life, and it was immediate, spontaneous, and unplanned. In fact, if you read through the book of Acts, you'll see this is a pattern over and over again. Like, you look at Acts chapter 8 with, with the Ethiopian eunuch. You see his baptism is just after he hears the gospel. It's immediate, it's unplanned, and it's spontaneous. You go into Acts chapter 9 with Saul on the road to Damascus, and then Ananias comes and shares the gospel with him, and Saul believes and then is baptized. It's immediate, unplanned planned and spontaneous. Acts chapter 16 with Lydia, similar thing. Acts chapter 18 with Crispus, this religious ruler. It is the same thing. It's immediate, it's unplanned, and it's in many ways, spontaneous. And, and, but, 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 but at its core, what is it? Let's talk about this. What were they doing? What was that 3,000 doing? Uh, they were making a public declaration of this brand new association that they had with Jesus and Savior Lord. That's what baptism is. That's why it is this great gift and this great symbol that God has given the church. I have a granddaughter now. I've told you that 100 times. She's amazing. Like we've just raised boys. Boys don't care about jewelry. Like my granddaughter is super into jewelry. Like every time she sits down, the first thing she wants to do, she says, necklace. That means my ring because I'm not wearing a necklace, but everything is a necklace. And she'll take my ring off and then she puts it on, on, her, on her hand. Now that doesn't mean she's married to Amy the moment she does that, right? That is, that's just like weird on about a thousand different levels, right? But, but we, we, we say baptism, we, we don't believe that the act of baptism imparts salvation. We believe baptism is a symbol of our salvation, right? That's based on a commitment that we've made to Jesus. And then as a sign and symbol of that commitment that we've made to Jesus, we go public with our faith through baptism. It is an important, important thing. And so it is this great symbol that the Lord's given. And your relationship with Jesus, let me say this, because there's been a lot of pushback to this, a lot of pushback. Your relationship with Jesus is a personal thing. Do you agree with that? Between you and God, it's a personal thing. But let me tell you something. Your relationship with Jesus is personal, but your relationship with Jesus is never meant to be private. So, so sometimes we think those things are synonymous. We think personal and private are synonymous, right? I have, some, I have some personal views, and those are kind of private. That's not the way it is with the gospel. Your relationship with Jesus is a personal relationship, but it is meant to be a public relationship for other people to see the greatness of our God. And that's why one of the reasons why God has given us this symbol of baptism. It is this public declaration of this inner commitment that we've made to Christ as Savior and Lord. Here's the fourth and final thing. At the first raise to life, many move from excuses to obedience. And I, I just see this today. We have so many excuses, so many reasons why we can't do what God's calling us to do. But I think about this. I think about those 3,000 that were baptized 2,000 years ago on Pentecost weekend in Jerusalem. Those are our ancestors of the faith. Does that make sense? I mean, that is your great-great-grandmom and great-great-granddaddy and the faith. And you know what personified them? They just were done with excuses and responded in obedience. God, if this is what you want for me, I'll obey. And God always blesses obedience. 
There's a lot of excuses. One of the most prominent excuses, and please, please extend some grace to me here. This is a complicated thing to talk about. One of the top excuses is this. Folks say, well, I was baptized as an infant, and so I don't think I need to be baptized again. And even deeper than that, if I am baptized again, I, I think I would be shaming my parents. I want to say something to you. We had someone in the last service, and that was their story, and they just went public today as a believer. Can I tell you something? I don't believe it would be shaming your parents. I think it will be fulfilling the hopes that your parents had when you were baptized as an infant at the beginning of your life, ultimately. See, it's very much like we do here if you've been in a service where we dedicate our children. It's really for the parents to say, we want to we raise these children to honor the Lord and to do our part and trust and believe that one day they will commit their lives to Christ. So if you've held back and your excuse is, I don't want to be, be, be baptized because I feel like it would shame my parents, I don't think that's the case. I think it could be fulfilling their hopes. Secondly, here's what I think, and we've seen it today. It might just lead to revival inside your family. It might just lead to revival inside of your family that your public declaration of your association with Christ could spread into your family in an unbelievable way. We saw that. We saw a brother baptized at 820, and then at 940, uh, uh, his twin brother went public with his faith in baptism. And so God just uses that in just an awesome way. And it could be the ripple effects of your obedience that just spreads through your family and brings revival in your family. Wouldn't you want that? It's exciting. Here's what I would say about infant baptism, please, please. From a church history standpoint, you don't see infant baptism practice for about 300 years after. It's 300 years after the first church. So it's, it's, it's more of a tradition than really the, the truth of God's word. What we see in scripture is we see believer's baptism, meaning someone puts faith and trust in Christ on their own. It's not a decision somebody makes for them. It's a decision that they make for themselves, and then they follow through with that public commitment through baptism. My problem with infant baptism, please, and would you extend some grace to me? I'm not trying to be offensive, but one day I have to stand before God. Do you understand? I'm going to be judged severely. One day I have to stand before God, and if I'm not honest with you, that, that's on me that has given a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people, maybe millions and millions of people, a false sense of security with their eternity. That's a dangerous thing, you see? If you're trusting in something your parents did for you at the beginning of your life, what needs to happen is you need to trust in what Jesus did to give you new life and then go public uh, with that. I think that's what the Bible teaches. Here's another excuse. Well, I don't think baptism's that important. I hear that. I don't think that's important. I've trusted Christ. I'm a follower of Christ. I don't think baptism's that important. Let me say this. Baptism is a command given us in Scripture. It's not a suggestion, right? Okay. I mean, it isn't just, hey, kick this around. Think about it if it works for you. It's the first act of obedience for a, a follower of Christ. And let, let me just tell you something. If you're not willing to do the first thing that Jesus asked you to do as a follower, that's going to lead to a pretty bumpy road in your discipleship, right? People always ask me, does baptism impart salvation? I don't believe baptism imparts salvation, but if a person is, is not willing to do the first thing Jesus has asked them to do, have they really received true salvation? That's kind of the, a better question, right? Here's another excuse. Well, today I'm just not, I'm not prepared to be baptized. You're better prepared than the 3,000 that were baptized on Pentecost weekend in Jerusalem, I promise you. 
right? I mean, they're a group of people waiting right now for you. There's a baptismal packet that you have, as Dakota said, with everything you need. The towels may be damp because we're having stroke, broken the drawer. But anyways, we've got everything. So you're more prepared than, than they were. So that's an excuse. Let me just say this. We say it a lot. You'll never run out of excuses. You will run out of time. Here's what I hear someone say, well, I rode with someone and I don't want to make them wait. Let's just do something here, right? Let's just do something. If you drove today and some people rode with you, if you'd be unwilling to wait for them to go public with their faith through baptism, would you just raise your hand? We had one guy Thursday night. I think he was an Uber driver. That's the reason he waited. But other than that, no, there's nobody. They would say, you know what? No, I don't, I, don't have, I don't have another five minutes for you. You're on your own. They would celebrate that. That's an excuse. You might say, well, my family's not here. I want my family to celebrate that. And I, I understand that. I get that. They can. More people are watching right now online that are in this room. By far, right? So all you need to do is just text them, hey, I'm about to be on TV. You want to see my baptism? They, they, will, they will have a better viewing of your baptism than the people sitting in this room. The camera's right on you, right? So just tell them, you know, watch, newvisionlife.com. Call aunts, call uncles, call friends. I mean, you can do that, right? I hear people say this, well, I don't want to be a Baptist. There are days I don't either. I'm kind of with you on that. I mean, um, right? No, just kidding. That's offended people all weekend. I'm, I'm, I'm sure you understand. This is not about a denomination. This is about your personal relationship with the living God, right? Let's just call it what it is. That's all that's about. There are three groups we're talking to here today. Three groups we're talking to. The first group, you're here today and, and you're lost. You're separated from God. Please listen. When Simon Peter says that he is Lord and Savior, that means he's master. But, but you know this, the story of your life. You've been the Lord of your life. There's never been a time that you've committed your life to Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. And when he says he's Savior, meaning He's the only hope of your salvation. There's not anything you can do to merit a relationship with God. Have you ever trusted him completely? And some of you need to do that today and then go public with your faith. The second group that we're talking to today are those who have placed faith and trust in Christ in the past, but have never, for whatever reason, gone public with baptism. Today's for you. These next few moments are for you. And then the last group, the third group, if you're watching an overflow, you can make your way here. The, the last group is, is, is this. It's baptisms on the wrong side, meaning you, you were a child and, and friends were doing it, brother and sister were doing it, and you were kind of pushed and coerced, but, but you know that it wasn't a decision that you made. It was a, a decision that maybe you were kind of manipulated to make, and we never, ever want to do that. But later in life, you've put faith and trust in Christ, and you want to get your baptism on the right side of your salvation. And so I want to give you a chance to do that. Right? And again, what do we say? You'll never run out of excuses. You will run out of time. And I can promise you this, there will never be a better time than right now in this moment to go public with your faith and walk in the greatest level of freedom that you have ever had in your life. And we want that for you. We want that for you. You know, sometimes people have asked, and I get it, I'm not offended by that. Well, how many people have you baptized? I don't know. I care about the next one that gets a chance to walk in freedom. That's all I care about. And that could be you. That could be you. 
Father, we love you and we praise you. We thank you for this moment in time. Now would you just move and work and could pride just die in this place and we respond in obedience. In Jesus' name, amen.